Good morning, Desert Springs Church. Let's stand as we hear from God's word as he calls us to worship him. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Salah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor, and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. For through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's do that just now and respond by singing. Crown him with many crowns. You can clap with us if you're able. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the
You can be seated. The great song to start off our corporate worship with this day. And as we will sing later this morning, to fix our eyes on him, on Jesus, our soul's reward. Well, we're thrilled to have Matt Jones with us leading musical worship this morning. Uh, we sent Matt off with, yeah, <laughs> it's good worship. It is worth having us. <laughs> we sent Matt off with 70 years or so other adults, maybe almost five years ago, to start Christ Church in downtown Albuquerque. Uh, and so again, great, great to see him again and have him with us to worship this morning. If you're visiting and you've got any questions, really about anything, this service, Desert Springs Church, uh, or the Bible, which we'll certainly talk about today quite a bit, please reach out to us at info at dscabq.com. And if you're here with us visiting in person, we'd love to meet you in person. That'd be much better than email. And so we'll have a few leaders up front here immediately after the service. Um, and there's a way that we can fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. And that is our Gospel Men Fellowship, uh, an opportunity that comes up uh, once a quarter. And we will have our seminar a few weeks from now, Saturday, May 1st. The topic for this is going to be spiritual gifts. So what they are, how we use them, what we can do that we're not doing or that perhaps we should be doing under the Holy Spirit's guidance in this area of spiritual gifts. So men, sign up. You can use the website or your app to sign up for that. And then uh, one more opportunity to serve others that I want to mention. We've got a blood drive coming up here at DSC in two weeks. Actually, we're doing this in partnership with Christ Church, but geographically it'll be here. Uh, you can sign up for uh, openings to give blood on Friday or Saturday. There's a lot more openings on Saturday right now. Um, and as you've heard me say before, this is a fantastic way to serve our city and our state. There is always a significant need for blood in New Mexico, even more so now than there was one or two years ago. So use your app to sign up for that. Now pray with me, please. Let's pray for our service. Father, speak and renew our minds this morning. Help us to grasp what you want us to learn and meditate on and respond to from the book of Galatians. Father, we pray you would bring men to come to the upcoming Gospel Men's Seminar and not just attend, but interact with brothers in Christ and go home to wives or children or friends more devoted to Jesus as King, more respectful of Jesus as Lord, more grateful to Jesus as Savior and more submissive to the Holy Spirit as he grants us these gifts and gives us the power and prompting to use them for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you please stand? And if you'll direct your attention to the side screens, say this confession with me. Almighty God, we confess that we are still held back by earthly cares and can't fix our minds and hearts on heaven. Lord, help us believe that you can abundantly meet our needs in this life and beyond. Lift our minds above these temporary perishing things and fix our hopes and wills on service to you. 
continually growing in grace until we become full and complete in Christ. We long to lay hold of the eternal kind of life you've promised to us and made available to us by the blood of your Son. May our lives reflect the longing in our hearts. Amen. Let's sing this as an encouragement after confessing. of ages step for me let me hide myself in me let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be a similar double cure safe from double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. The gospel of Jesus does that. It saves us and it is power to change. If you uh, believe that, then you can sing this next song confidently that Jesus is the lover of your soul. Jesus love 
Spring thou a 
seated. Good morning. My name is Keith Schwalm. I'm an elder candidate here at DSC. It is good to be with you today. Uh, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we adore your glory. We are gathered this Sunday to worship you. Your grace and your mercy is revealed through Christ. You are perfectly righteous. You are sovereign over all things, and yet you are also our gentle and loving Father, our great counselor. Plenteous grace is found with thee. David reminds us in Psalm 19 that your word is reviving to our soul. It is good news for us in any condition, and it brings joy and life everlasting. Your word is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than honey. Being in your word is being with you, Lord. Thank you. Grow us in a desire for your word as our treasure. Lord, your word was breathed out by you through the Holy Spirit to the authors who penned these words. Lord, they are your words. It is so amazing that we can hear your direction to us through Scripture. Today I lift up to you the biblical counseling ministry here at DSC, a ministry you established almost 20 years ago, a ministry dedicated to using Scripture alone to helping those struggling with life's trials and suffering. Thank you for those who have persevered in the ministry these many years. Thank you, too, for the more than 100 men and women who have attended training through the Counseling Training Center. Thank you specifically for the certified counselors serving each week at DSC. They are faithful to come alongside those seeking help on life and relationship issues. They bring scripture to bear, Lord, with Christ at the center of those counseling conversations. We are we are also so grateful for those that are in the final phase of certification. Lord, in particular, those from outside our body. It's such a joy. It is such a privilege that we've been able to train and soon send out biblical counselors to other churches. Lord, we'd love to see more of that. Would you please raise up within the body of DSC men and women who would desire to learn more about applying your sufficient word alone to help those in need? Would you bring more from outside our church to be certified? We would like to see ministries like ours raised up in other churches so they can care directly for those in their own body. This is how you designed the church, each one of us caring for each other within the church, bearing each other's burdens, pointing each other to Christ, as our hope in all things. Lord, would you help us all to be better counselors to each other? Lord, whether that's in community group or one-to-one -one relationships, you've called Christians to be disciplers, simply another word for counselors. Father, as we are discipling each other, Lord, would you prick our hearts, remind us to look solely to your word as the source of truth. Through your word, we see Christ and the glory of the gospel. He who paid our penalty for our sin, he also bore our suffering on the cross. It is through Jesus, Lord, that we have real hope. We can find real and lasting change. Christ is all we want. May we behold him and his glory as we worship together 
under the teaching of your word this morning. It is in Christ's precious and caring name that I pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. Let's stand again and sing as we prepare to hear from God's word.
Yes, Lord, we believe that in the faithful preaching of your word, you speak afresh. For your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is food for our souls, nourishment for our beings. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us. We pray you would speak to us. We pray you would show us your glory in your word again today for our good and for your glory and fame. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And as we work our way through this fascinating letter from the Apostle Paul, it brings us today to this word, this idea, this doctrine of justification. Justification. What does it mean to be justified? Do we need to be justified? And if so, how can we be justified? It's attributed to Martin Luther, the reformer, this saying that justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. It's the article on which the church stands or falls. Similarly, J.I. Packer likened justification to Atlas with the whole world resting on his shoulders. Packer said, The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on his shoulders. When we let the thought of justification drop out of our minds, true knowledge of salvation drops with it. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down too. Well, the Apostle Paul sure thought that this word, this concept, this doctrine of justification was important. It's important in his magnum opus, the book of Romans, and it's important in his first scriptural letter to the Galatians. That word justified, as we'll see in our passage, is found three times in verse 16 of chapter 2. Three times. A fourth time in verse 17. And then we'll see several more times in weeks ahead in Galatians 3. The words justification or justified might be new to you and they might seem well thick heady intellectual theological technical but I assure you that this is as practical and as relevant as it gets it's more important than the air that you are breathing right now It's as important and relevant as this thought experiment that perhaps you've engaged in before. Perhaps someone has asked you to consider this. If you died tonight and stood before God, and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? What is the basis by which God would rightly let you into heaven? Now, this is hypothetical, of course. I don't suspect that there will be a verbal test at heaven's gates. It's an imaginary scenario, but it is telling, isn't it? How we answer that question may indicate whether we have true saving faith 
or something else. That word justification is not the secret password to enter heaven, like heaven is some sort of old speakeasy with a password for the night. Now, the word justification just sums up the basis by which we can rightly enter God's presence. Justification is a one-word summary of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we can be saved from sin and judgment by trusting that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day. Believing that, God will reckon us innocent, even righteous, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've been studying the book of Galatians in recent weeks, and we've been seeing, this will remind you or catch you up if you haven't been with us, the Galatians were early Christians, new Christians. They had heard and received the gospel from the missionary and apostle Paul. But since Paul had left them, false teachers had come to town adding to the gospel. And so Paul writes Galatians out of great concern. He says in chapter 1 that they were in danger of turning to another gospel which isn't a gospel at all. It's not good news. It's a distorted gospel, he called it in verse 7 of chapter 1. And he warned in verse 9 that if anyone came preaching a different gospel than the one that they've already heard, they should treat that person as accursed, damned, anathema. Remember that the true gospel and the distorted gospel can be distinguished with those two A words, alone and and. Alone and and. The true gospel is alone. Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, it's to the glory of God alone. And all other false gospels are and kind of gospels. They may have a degree of Christ. They may have a measure of faith. They may believe even in the death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. But if there's an and that follows, it is not the biblical gospel. These Galatians had been told that they too could be made right with God through Jesus as long as they also committed themselves to Jewish rites and ceremonies and dietary laws found in the Old Testament. And while not many today teach that kind of and gospel that is so Jewish-focused as the Galatians faced, the and problem is as real as ever. So let's read our passage, Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21, where Paul really gets to the thick of the problem, the nub of the difference between these two Gospels. Verse 15, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Notice that Paul begins these verses with that second person plural, we. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Who is the we? Who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? Well, most likely he's still relaying to the Galatians what he once said to Peter. Remember this from a couple of weeks ago? Look back at verse 11. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 13, he and others acted hypocritically. Verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, in the English Standard Version, the quotation closes at the end of verse 14. Do you see that? Quotation marks at the end of verse 14. But quotation marks are not in the original Greek. And so scholars sometimes debate exactly where a quote begins or ends. You have to sort of supply this for the English translation based on our guess of how the language is working. And so some translations end the quote at verse 14, and other translations have it continuing all the way through verse 21. And I think the latter is probably right. I think that Paul is recording here for the Galatians what he said to Peter, and he said more than just a line or two. I think that language of we tells us that. That shared Jewish heritage that Peter and Paul would have shared, but Paul in the Galatians would not have shared. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He's still talking to Peter. Now, where a quote ends isn't often that important for the big interpretive matters of a passage and they really don't change the things of this passage either. But, but we establish it up front, since I'll probably note it in passing a couple more times that Paul is still here talking to Peter and relaying that to the Galatians. Let me suggest three headings, all related to that word justification. And we'll take the longest time on the first, in typical Ryan Kelly fashion, Partly because that's how my sermon writing goes. I sort of hurry at the end. But uh, more importantly, and I think more true, 
we need to establish the doctrine of justification first, and then once that's established, we can lean upon that and cruise a little more quickly through the rest. So here's the first and the longest. We can call it justification stated. Justification stated, especially in verse 16, Paul states the matter, and he states it by way of contrast. He uses repetition and contrast in verse 16 to make crystal clear how one is justified and how one is not justified. He begins with the negative and then moves to the positive. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but is through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he flips it around, positive to negative. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law. And then he states it emphatically and universally. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That last bit of verse 16 is likely a paraphrase of Psalm 143, verse 2. In Psalm 143, King David begins this prayer. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. And then here's the paraphrased For no one living is righteous before you. In Psalm 143, David has a twofold concern. Enemies from without and guilt from within. And on both fronts, he asks God for help and for mercy. And he pleads for God's mercy, according to verse 1, according to God's faithfulness and righteousness. In other words, not according to his own faithfulness, not according to his own righteousness, not according to his own decent intentions. He is casting himself on the mercy of the high court of heaven. He knows that if there is a just judgment to befall upon his soul, apart from mercy the verdict would be guilty, as it would be for everyone, not just David. No one is righteous before you. So Paul, I think, hints at Psalm 143 to show us where we all stand before God without mercy. He hints at Psalm 143 to to show us how to turn to God appealing to his mercy, the basis that we can appeal to his mercy. It's God himself, not ourselves. And Paul hints at Psalm 143 in Galatians 2 to show us that this way of recognizing our guilt and turning to God for mercy, that's as old as the hills. That's as old as old King David. This isn't some newfangled way that God saves. Yes, saving faith has now, this side of the cross and resurrection, it's gotten more specific, right? Messiah now has a name. 
Acts 4, verse 12, there is now salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is now a name to confess. And there is now even greater clarity about how God will have mercy on sinners according to his righteousness and faithfulness. But it's always been holy of his grace. And that's all the more clearer now with Christ. So back to verse 16 of Galatians 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Let me offer to you several theses, several summaries or observations in this power-packed verse of verse 16. The language is intentionally judicial, legal, forensic. The courtroom is not the only metaphor that the Bible uses to teach us about salvation. Sometimes it uses a financial metaphor describing our debt and poverty, but Christ's riches, which he freely gives upon us, taking on our poverty and giving us his riches. That's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. But the word justified is distinctly courtroom language. It's the language of verdict, God's verdict. The opposite of justified is condemned. Another courtroom word that's used in the New Testament to describe our guilt The word justified literally means to be declared righteous. Not just declared innocent or declared not guilty, declared righteous. It's even better. Maybe you've heard that justified means just as if I never sinned. Again, that's good. That's close. Just that alone would be great, but it's better than that. God declares righteous on account of Christ in his righteousness. It's as if we fulfilled the law perfectly. We batted a thousand, and that's how God treats us. The result then is no condemnation, complete freedom, no guilt. Think of how Romans 8 speaks of condemnation. It, it actually begins and ends regarding condemnation. It begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And toward the end, Paul says, who can bring a charge? You hear the courtroom language? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus died and was raised. Now, there are people who really don't like courtroom language to describe our salvation. There are people who would call themselves Christians. There are those who would even think of themselves themselves as Bible scholars who think that the courtroom metaphor is, um, 
it's cold. It's, it's rigid. It, it makes God out to be this impersonal judge. And they don't like it. Well, it's a little too late to file that complaint. It's already in the Bible. Justification is a legal term, like it or not. No, it's not the only word picture for our salvation, and that's why adoption is so sweet and rounds out the picture. It's not merely legal, but it is legal. You may not like it, but that's the way God chose to reveal the situation and the gospel. Why would God reveal it that way? Well, uh, uh, on one level, we don't know. He's God. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord or ever been his counselor? Uh, On another level, we can say, apparently it was kind of God to do this. It was kind of God to show us salvation in various word pictures and metaphors. John Calvin said that God condescends to talk to us in baby talk. The Bible, deep as it is and precise as it is with its theological language, it's God's baby talk to us. It's like a a mom cooing and ooing over her infant just to communicate tenderness and sweetness and joy to her baby. And God apparently was pleased to portray the gospel to us in legal terms so that we'd get it. Because from a very young age living in this world, we learned something about being guilty, being in trouble with the law. We, we learned something about punishment that is owed. And we can even imagine another taking our place if God would allow it. And so justification is substitutionary. God declares us righteous on account of Christ and Christ alone. Not mostly Christ and some you. All Christ. He declares righteous what is not in itself righteous, namely me and you, because It's based on Christ's perfect righteousness. In financial terms, it'd be like Jesus is willing to swap bank accounts with you. Your bank statement, it's disastrous. So is mine. It's in the negative. We're deep, deep, deep in debt and we're in trouble. Christ's bank statement, it just has an infinity sign. It's to the full. It's all we need. It's all the riches. And Jesus will take our debt, nail it to the cross, pay our debt, and give us his full righteousness, his full riches. All that comes to us simply by believing. It's through faith. You see that emphasis? Through faith in Jesus We've believed in Christ Jesus. It is by faith in Christ. There's a contrast between faith and works of the law. That means then that faith is not a work. It's not something you've got to work up. If your idea of faith is like, uh, 
I'm going to try to muster up faith. I'm going to work hard at believing this thing of Jesus. You don't get it. Faith is the holding out of the empty hand, asking God to fill it. That's what faith is. Faith is like the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus said of that man, he hadn't seen faith like that in all the region. That was special faith, a man who recognizes his lack of faith and asks God to to supply what's lacking. The Westminster Larger larger Catechism, written in the 1640s, it, it asked the question, what is justification? And the answer goes like this. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, which God imputes to them received by faith alone. Which means then that this system, this, well, what verse 16 teaches us, is binary options. Not shades of gray, two options. Two systems. Works of the law, you trust in that, it leads to hell. Or faith in Christ. Notice how Paul he just paints with a wide brush, not shades of gray. He doesn't tiptoe around the, the niceties and the nuance. It's, it's black and white for him. He, he doesn't say, like many do today, ah, that relationship between faith and works, that's tricky. I mean, works, surely those are good. Surely God wants us to do good, not bad. So I don't know what the combination is. I don't know whether, you know, you got to, do 10% yours and 90% it's his grace. Some would say, oh, I, I sure wouldn't fault anyone who at least has a place for grace, who thinks that it's mostly of grace, potato, potato. Well, the false teachers in Galatia believed in grace, just not grace alone. It was grace and And that's a different gospel. For Paul, this is an either-or matter. He says in Romans 4, it's either a work system or it's a faith system. He says, to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. Righteousness. You say, well, what about James 2? I know about James 2, Ryan. Faith without works is dead. And that's true. And James is right. But James is talking about the results of salvation. The outworking of our faith. Paul in Galatians 2 is speaking of the requirements of salvation. The initiation of our faith. Paul is talking about how we get in. James is talking about how we live it out. 
I find the example, the parable in Luke 18 so telling about what you might be trusting in. Remember that question? If God said, why would I let you into heaven, what would you say? What's the basis? Well, in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're both praying at the temple, but praying very differently. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Notice, he's got a spot for grace. I thank God I'm not like him. But his focus is clearly on comparative religion and comparative performance. And he's escalating, elevating the opinion of his own doing, even if it's doing by God's grace. God, I thank you I'm not like him. I give, I obey, and I'm not unclean like him. But the tax collector just simply beat on his chest, looking straight up to heaven, comparing himself with no one. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, commenting on the parable, it was that man, the latter, who went home justified that day. The tax collector went home justified. And so here's another observation about this justification you might want to write down. It can be immediate. Through faith, it is immediate. Assurance comes from it. Jesus said of the tax collector who asked for mercy, that man went home justified. God declared him righteous. It was settled. It's because it was based on Christ's work, his perfection. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And that's unchanging. And so our state before God can be settled now and unchanging, not based on our present or future performance. You say, I don't know, Ryan. That sounds pretty radical. Well, hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Notice, secondly, we've got justification needed in verses 17 to 19. Justification needed. We've got three verses, 17, 18, and 19, and there are three different ways of essentially saying the same thing. Verse 17 says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Stop there. What is he saying? Well, he's presenting a hypothetical, and it's one I believe that he agrees with. So you can, just for ease of interpretation, remove the if just for now. He's saying, In endeavoring to be justified... We too, we Jews, remember? We who have the law, we too have been found to be sinners. He doesn't mention the law until verse 19, but he's hinting at it in all three of these verses. In endeavoring to be justified through the law before I came to Christ, we too have been found to be sinners. Continues in verse 17. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. I suspect here he's answering his opponents. 
Apparently, his opponents had been saying that Paul's gospel is so radically gracious that it makes Christ out to be a servant of sin. Paul says, no. Verse 18, he says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, the law had been torn down in Christ. And if Paul returns to the old laws, rebuilding what he tore down, and then he says, I would, I would only further prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, the law exposes sin. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. In other words, the law so proved my guilt that it forced me to come to the end of the law. I died to the law, but that was God's path towards true life, life in God through Christ. Paul summarizes it maybe more clearly and simply in Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He'll talk about this later in Galatians 3, when he says that the Mosaic law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was holding us in prison under the banner of guilty until we were ready for Christ. The law, small l law, and the Mosaic law especially, the purpose of it was to show need, to expose sin, to drive us helpless and hopeless to a Savior outside of us and outside of our efforts. John Calvin said, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for help. Oh, you see this in the gospel accounts. When some come to Jesus, those who are self-reliant, self-righteous, proud, when some people come to Jesus inquiring of him, what is, you know, what is law 2.0, Jesus? I've been obeying the commandments since my youth. Do you have any, like, super commandments for someone like me? And Jesus says to the rich young ruler in Luke 18 who asked him that, yeah, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That man went away sad because he was very rich. He asked for law, and Jesus gave him more law because he apparently hadn't yet come to the end of himself and come to the end of his own righteousness and come to the end of his own efforts. If that's you, you need more law. If you think you're doing pretty good, if you haven't yet come to the end of yourself, if you... Don't yet have eyes only for Jesus, your substitute. You just keep trying. Wear yourself out. You better do it pretty quick. I want you to get through that and come out the other side like every Christian has. 
Jesus said in Luke 5 that the the physician didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. The well don't think they need a physician. They don't go to the doctors. But Jesus came to call sinners to himself, not the righteous, not the quote-unquote righteous, those who think that they're righteous, but those who know that they're not righteous. Jesus comes calling. He came calling in Matthew 11 like this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Another reason why this is all so very relevant and practical, it's not just because it will be eternally relevant when we stand before God the judge in heaven one day. It's because most of us now live life seeking approval Seeking justification from others. We want others' acceptance. We're desperate to to know and experience being good enough, approved. You you might look to parents for that. You might look to a, a new group of friends for that. You might look to an online community for that or an academic community. I don't know where you look for acceptance and approval, but I suspect you do. You know. I don't know what the criteria is in your community that you seek acceptance in. It varies from one community to another. But we all, by nature, apart from God's grace, we are all desperately seeking justification and approval from others. And yet we know deep down, don't we, This is futile. This isn't lasting. Even their best and brightest smile about us, that's precarious. It can turn like that. Oh, to have God's final verdict on you settled right now, justified, on account of Christ. Believe it. Receive it. And if you died tonight, and God did say, why should I let you into heaven? Well, you just, you don't say anything about you. That's how it works. It's all about him. All you bring to the table are empty hands and a sinful heart. But he fills our hands. He cleanses our hearts. He is enough. Justification is needed. And I pray you know that. And then thirdly, we can think of justification lived. Verse 20 and 21. It's lived. Verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful verse. Many of us have memorized this verse. It was one of the earlier verses I memorized, and rightly so. Many of us have learned from Galatians 2.20 that our old sinful self has been crucified. It's dead. 
That's no longer us. And now Jesus, specifically his Holy Spirit, indwells us. Not only indwells us, but empowers us, convicts us of sin, directs us, strengthens us, etc. Now, I think all those things are true, but I don't think we actually get them from Galatians 2.20. I don't. I think they're true, but they're true from other passages of Scripture, probably not from Galatians 2.20. Don't take my word from it. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he has a very helpful book called Love in Hard Places, and he takes several pages of it to talk about our often misunderstood approach to Galatians 2.20. In short, Carson says we need to pull it from the file labeled sanctification, the Christian life, growing, living it out, And we need to move this verse over to the file labeled justification. Carson points out that Paul is saying the same thing all the way through our passage. It's all about justification. He's not switching gears in verse 20 to talk about how to live it out, only to switch back again in verse 21 to speak of how we got it in the first place. See verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, that's essentially what he said in verse 17 and 18 and 19. It's essentially what he said in verse 16. And it's essentially what he is saying in verse 20. Verse 20, I think, is about justification. You see, that's about substitution too. Paul is saying here in verse 20 that Christ was crucified in his place. He's saying the death of Jesus, that's my death. His life, that's my life. And so life now, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout, it is one of faith. As he'll say later in Galatians 3, quoting Habakkuk 3, the just shall live by faith. You see that? Live by faith. This is their banner. This is their life. This sums it all up. It's one of faith. And faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His point is he doesn't stop believing By way of example, he teaches us, keep on believing. This is your main job, Christian. It is what is most fundamental to our faith. Believe. When our kids were little, one parenting tactic that we occasionally tapped into was to tell our little kids, you have one job, obey. That's it. That's your job today. That's your one job. Of course, I hear that now and I think aggressive young parents, idealistic, too rigid and firm, expectations probably a little too high. So I don't offer it to you as a parenting advice necessarily, but, but it serves by way of an example here, an illustration. 
Isn't it true that belief and faith is what is most fundamental and necessary to who we are as Christians? Whatever else follows, this is what is most necessary. Keep believing. We are believers. As Journey taught us to sing, don't stop believing. Even if you lose that feeling... Sorry. Well, let me quote Martin Luther again, who helps us. He says, People don't earn God's approval or receive life and salvation because of anything they've done. Rather, the only reason they receive life and salvation is because of God's kindness in Christ. There is no other way. He says, Many Christians are tired of hearing this teaching over and over. They think they learned it all long ago. However, they barely understand how important it really is. We can never learn this truth completely or brag that we understand it fully. Learning this truth is an art. We will always remain students of it. The people who truly understand that they receive God's approval by faith and put this into practice, they don't brag that they have fully mastered it. Rather, they think of it as a pleasant taste or aroma that they're always pursuing. These people are astonished that they can't comprehend it as fully as they would like. They hunger and thirst for it. They yearn for it more and more. They never get tired of hearing about this truth. And elsewhere, Luther said, Justification is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. And it is most necessary, therefore, that we should know it well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. And here's the thing. The more we get this into our heads, the more it changes us the more it transforms us, the more it shapes us, the more it empowers us and strengthens us. And that's why Paul was so angry at Peter earlier in this chapter when Peter hypocritically would eat with Gentiles as long as the Jewish religious intelligentsia wasn't around. But as soon as they showed up, oh, no, 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 Gentile Christians, don't eat with them. They're dirty because you save face with these hyper-religious sorts, these legalists. And Paul says in verse 14, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Partiality, superiority, not accepting one, choosing another, fear of others. These things are not in step with the truth of the gospel. I thought this week, where's the application in our passage? You know, what, what does it tell us to do? What does it change? How should we think? Especially if Galatians 2.20 isn't Christ working in and through me every day in the Christian life. Well, the application is back in verse 14. Remember, this is all one speech to Peter. Paul started by saying, 
this isn't in step with the gospel. And then he showed him what the gospel was. The gospel will not allow us to be partial or superior to those for whom Christ died. God himself has declared them righteous, accepted, justified, right with him. That's it. That's settled. That's good news for me and good news for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do pray that we would rest in this gospel of a perfect crucified Savior in our place and rest in him alone, not trusting any of our own works as the basis for acceptance with you, as if it did anything, as if it could garner your attention, as if it could earn your grace May it never be that we nullify the grace by trying to obey the law, negating Christ's death. But do help us, Lord, to live in light of it. Do help us, Lord, to have conduct that is in step, locked step with the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the far-reaching implications of Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing to respond. Hey, God, when Jesus saves, he doesn't just declare us innocent. He declares us righteous. That's so good. Hopefully that's encouraging to you too. Sing this by faith.
language of fixing our eyes on him comes from, comes from Hebrews 12. Fixing your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's everything in between. Fix your eyes on him, Christian. Keep your eyes on him. So go to his word often. Talk to him regularly. Relate things to him. Give burdens to him. Worship him. Hold him out to others. Fix your eyes on him. When you doubt, fix your eyes on him. And if you haven't yet come to savingly fix your eyes on Jesus, perhaps today the author of your faith would sort of birth that, make it alive in your hearts today. Let us know how we can help if you're seeking Christ or perhaps starting to see that he's been seeking you. We'd love to be able to help you. There are, uh, there are going to be people up front afterwards who um, are here to greet you and pray with you and answer any questions that you might have about this Jesus, uh, if you have any. Let us know how we can help. Well, I 
Release us with this blessing from 2 Thessalonians 2. Hear this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.